When it comes to developing my career as a writer and director, there's been a ton of not knowing what I don't know when it comes to storytelling and production and everything, which is kind of why I started tuning into No Film School back in the day. It's been humbling in its own right, and it's taken a ton of learning, learning by doing and studying and by failing, et cetera, to get to this point where I'm more aware of my blind spots. But one area that I've always been aware of and particularly intimidated by is anything that touches a lawyer. Because if you mess up legally, there are repercussions that are not protected by our little emerging filmmaker bubble of, well, I didn't know. It's my first time. This is Gigi Hawkins, writer, director, host of this podcast. And today I speak with lawyer and indie producer, Natalie Louvet. Natalie, her day job is working as corporate counsel for Google, where she handles the company's largest celebrity engagements for commercials, speaking events, and short-form content. But Natalie has extensive experience working in entertainment in the indie space as a producer and a lawyer, as well as on the more corporate studio side in the entertainment industry. Prior to joining Google, Natalie spent five years at Sony Pictures, where she handled marketing and distribution matters for over 20 films a year, including Spider-Man, Far From Home, Zombieland 2, Hotel Transylvania, and Jumanji. She negotiated director and producer and actor deals at Legendary Pictures. And in addition to this day job, she's produced two independent feature films, including the upcoming release, A Creature with Stirring, hitting theaters this November. In our conversation, Natalie will demystify a ton of things for me, legal questions, things that keep me up at night, so you can avoid the mistakes that so many beginners have made. We'll cover how you ensure you have the proper chain of title, when to hire production counsel, how to get your SAG deposit back, tips for legal delivery of your distribution, and key provisions to include in talent contracts. On top of this, we'll also go into what to avoid when agreeing to vendor and location agreements, and we'll also get to Natalie's perspective on indie filmmaking given the SAG and WGA strikes that we are currently in. So without further ado, Here's my interview with Natalie Louvet. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you, Natalie, for joining us on the No Film School podcast. You're so welcome. I'm happy to be here. So let's just start from the beginning. It was a dark and stormy night. You were born into this world. No. How did you get your start as as a lawyer and somebody who's working in entertainment? Yeah, that's a great question. So I went to school for journalism and I applied to law school because I had these skills of writing and editing, and I wasn't sure I would ever make money as a journalist. I went to law school, and I met my now husband, who was an aspiring filmmaker, and he helped me get my first internship at MGM Studios. And from there, during law school, I proceeded to get 
a variety of internships at NBC and Lionsgate and other studios. And by the time I graduated law school, I pretty much didn't know any other part of the law other than entertainment. So I was pigeon-told and I used my contacts at those various internships to land jobs at first an entertainment law firm, then at Legendary Pictures, where I was a production counsel during sort of the heyday of Hangover movies and the Dark Knight trilogy. And then from there, I segued over to Sony Pictures. So I have had the privilege of handling a variety of different contracts and legal matters for really big films. But then also while doing that, my husband roped me into his passion and got me to start producing his shorts and features. And so that is how I also became a producer as a side hustle. When you were first given that producing hat or took on that producing role, were you in that mindset where you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing, but I'm going to figure it out? Like I finished law school, I've had this accomplished career or, or did you sort of go in with the where, wherewithal of like, well, I know about production through the lens of this. Like what was that first initial being on set like? There was definitely a lot of thoughts of, I have no idea what I'm doing but I was doing it out of necessity. Our first film was a short film where we raised the money on Kickstarter. So it was extremely low budget. And so he just needed someone to put out fires and help onboard vendors. And I feel like I used a lot of the skills that I use as a lawyer in the capacity as a producer because I'm negotiating and trying to solve problems so I can get a deal done. And that's really what a producer does every day. There's some problem and we have to work with the people in front of us to figure out how to make it happen so the director gets what they want so that we have a good film at the end. So it's been it's been a fun ride. I've learned a lot. Yeah. Now, let's talk about the different types of lawyers in the entertainment industry because I, I immediately think of like your the lawyer that represents you as a director, as a writer, as a you know, part of your team as part of an agent and a manager. And like the lore goes, you know, when people ask what, ask what is the difference between a manager, an agent, and a lawyer, and what do you need? People are like, your manager is like your day-to-day best friend, like in the trenches with you, helping you develop. Your agent is usually somebody that you bring on when like a contract is already, where there's an offer already on the table, and then they kind of like fit in there. And then a lawyer well, you really need a lawyer always. And and sometimes you just need a lawyer, like, and no, nothing else. And so that's kind of like the entertainment lawyer that I, I, I think about. So I'd love to like hear your perspective on emerging creators and what they need. And then also, you know, lawyers that are working on as counsel for a production company or for a studio. Like how do those, d- those different teams interact? So many good questions within the one question. So to start with the different types of lawyers, we traditionally think of the talent lawyer as the lawyer who is representing talent. So they're at some big firm and they're representing a writer or a director or producer. They generally take 5%, right? There are also some lawyers who work at smaller firms who will work on an hourly basis, which in many cases actually makes sense and will save someone money in the long in the long term, especially if you're first starting out. There's also lawyers actually within agencies, which is a little known secret. And there's some A-listers actually, who, for example, use CAA attorneys to handle their deals because they're saving 5% because Mm. it's baked into the 10% that CAA is taking. I had Um, no idea that was a thing. That's so interesting. Yeah. I remember at one point I had a colleague who was working at an agency and she was basically doing just huge contracts for big A-listers who were just trying to save money. And so that would also be an option for someone starting out. If they land at an agency, there's always, there are always attorneys who will be able to help them. I am obviously a little bit biased because I believe if you find yourself a good lawyer, they could wear all three hats. Maybe not the manager hat, you know, in that a lawyer's not necessarily going to get meetings and have long conversations about your career. But when it comes to deal making, lawyers are getting a contract from a studio or for some, someone who's hiring you 
and they negotiate both business and legal points. So in many cases, if you had a really good manager who would help you figure out where you want to go in your career and a lawyer, I, I think you to be well-serviced and save yourself 10% on an agent. A lot of times my experience has been that an agent doesn't come in until there's actually a deal to be made. And lawyers know how to make a deal. So they can come in and do exactly what an agent does. And honestly, in many cases, again, I realized I'm biased. A lot of times lawyers bring up stuff at the deal-making stage that ultimately saves you in the end because they're negotiating points that later don't come until you have a long-form agreement. And a lot of times it's like, I just want to get to set. We're starting in two days. Why are we negotiating these points? And they're dropped. But a lawyer could have brought it up months in advance when you were making that deal and helped get you a better deal. Wow. That, that is advice that will save people a lot of money or help them get better deals like upfront. So that is so, so helpful and tangible. I, 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 I'm laughing because I'm getting this like strange PTSD callback to my previous career where I was working in advertising for a podcast company. And we put together, we basically sold through this deal to a consumer goods product company, the one of the biggest advertising spenders in the world. But we were we didn't have in-house counsel until a couple months into the deal. And we had somebody who actually came from the entertainment industry. And the way that the deal points were put together was I sent over a suggested <laughs> I email with with some bullet points. And that was taken into the agency's email. It became the deal memo. It became this thing. Like it was carried over. And like so early were those established. I wasn't even trying to establish anything, by the way. I was just like, let's get the conversation started. Blah, blah, blah. And that got carried over. And months down the line, the lawyer's like, who wrote this? This and what <laughs> lang- What? Are-? And I was like, it was me. I'm sorry. And I can't believe that it was. And then we were in negotiations for like a year talking about those deal points. But like, that's something where like upfront, there should have been a conversation with a lawyer. And it's so worth investing in understanding and being on the same page and like being, knowing what you want to go for and protect early on so you can carry that over because you'll be dealing, living with that contract for years, you know? Yeah, unfortunately, I've been in a lot of circumstances where I get a deal memo where I'm told this is the final deal. And there's so many key parts that are missing. And then everyone's frustrated because they're like, oh, the lawyer came in and is you know bringing up all these points. And time really could have been saved if we talked about it at the front end. So I think bringing in a lawyer in early makes a lot of sense. Lawyers are your best friend, truly. I, I wanted to add one other thing because you, you asked a great question about in-house lawyers. So in-house lawyers are representing the studio or the distributor or whatever company they're working for. And I'll just be honest because I have a lot of friends in those roles. If you don't have a lawyer representing you when you're making a deal, you are getting a worse deal. A lot of times you are getting a worse form agreement because Mm. frankly, they're like, oh, great. They're not repped. Yeah. So if you are lucky enough to be able to land a deal with a studio or distributor, I would say you absolutely must have a lawyer helping you because there will be so many things that you will kick yourself later that you wish were not in your contract. Mm-hmm. And if you're lucky enough that let's say it ends up, you know, many sequels or many, many you develop years the of next series, Indiana Jones and yeah, yeah, you will hate yourself for it. So I know everyone has a lawyer story where a lawyer screwed them, but in the case of entertainment, if you were lucky enough to be in that position, hire a lawyer immediately. Yeah. Let's talk about that exact scenario and that moment and what you should say as you're going to find that lawyer. So say, scenario, we have Joanna. She sold through She sold through a pilot. She Maybe she did so via a competition or a lab, and, and now they want to move forward with the project. And she doesn't have a lawyer. Or maybe she doesn't even have representation. When it gets to that point where there's like strong indication that like they want to move forward, say you're with, you're speaking with a Netflix, for example, what language should you use when you'll be like, thank you so much. So excited about this. Like, 
I'm going to be looping in my legal counsel. And then you like send the email and then you go search for entertainment lawyers. Like, is that, is that kind of how you should t- create that space to go find the counsel? Yeah. Great question. So of course you should be enthusiastic, but I would advise against saying you have a lawyer if you don't until you have one. And the reason I say that is because there's very particular laws that a company can't talk to someone who's repped by a lawyer. You have to go to the lawyer. Mm. So you don't want to like call someone's bluff and then they stop talking to you. And they're like, okay, send your lawyer to us. And then you don't have one because the talks could stop. I think that if you are in that lucky situation, finding a manager agent first, a lot of times makes sense because you want your lawyer and your manager to work well together. The last thing you want to do is go find an attorney and the manager's like, I hate that person, which of course happens because it's Hollywood. So I think a lot of times it makes sense if you're trying to find representation. Usually if you have a pilot deal or something like that, someone is going to rep you because they want that 10%. And then I would ask them, can you intro me to three attorneys? I want to move fast. I'd like to meet with all of them on X day, meet with them. And if they're recommended by another rep, then you can be sure that, oh, they must think highly of them and they're going to work well together. Yeah. That's great advice. Let's, let's talk about the, the mistakes that all beginners make. I mean, we've kind of already hit one, which is don't say you have a lawyer if you don't have a lawyer yet. Like say, I'm all, I'm, I'm in conversation with yes lawyer. In or conversation. Like couple, yeah. And, and I'd like to like get that confirmed before we move forward with anything. But yeah, what are, what are some of the other things? And I have a list of specifics here, but I'd love to hear the like, the thing, the mistake that you, you're like, again, everyone, we haven't learned this yet. One thing I get a lot from people who are starting out is the, I don't want to sign the release to send a script. Even as a lawyer who understands what these release says, which is basically, it's going to say effectively, we may have a project very similar to you, to yours. You may not sue us because of that fact. Even if it says something like that, I still recommend signing it. Because if someone's willing to read your script, the more eyes, the better. And even if there's a concern about that this is the greatest idea ever, my experience is that that means the studio is going to want to work with you then. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not going to hire a writer later down the road to change your script and you'll be super upset about it. But I personally think it's easier to talk to the originator of the idea and work with them, especially if they're starting out, then stealing your idea and giving it to someone who's way more expensive. Because someone who's starting out, they already know you're going to, you know, as Matt Damon and Ben Affleck said, they said they'd take a bucket of chicken if someone made Goodwill Hunting. So yeah. that's usually my recommendation. There are a couple of times when the releases studios send over are really sketchy. For example, if it says, by submitting it, we're going to own your work. So I'm not saying don't read read the release, definitely read it. But so long as it looks like industry standard, which is we get a lot of ideas and submissions and some of them may be familiar to yours. I would say you should move ahead and forge relationships with everyone who's reading it and always be you know, gracious and nice and don't give off the diva vibe and they will mm-hmm. most likely want to work with you. Right. That's actually a, a, a scenario that I've experienced when I was running the Gotham Week Project Market audio vertical. There were a ton of meetings being taken with a large studio that was setting up their their audio arm and they had them sign a very standard entertainment agreement and two teams opted to not to not sign and not take that meeting. And and I think that is a a naive perspective to to not to miss that opportunity. This idea of idea stealing. Let's talk a little bit about idea stealing because I do think young emerging writers have this sort of fear that somebody is going to take their idea, not even in a studio situation, but like, I can't talk about my idea because somebody might steal it. Like, is that a valid fear? Is this industry, an industry that's so built on reputation, would that get back to somebody who stole the idea? Like, would 
stealing someone's idea bite them in the butt? Like, what are your thoughts on on keeping quiet about your idea so nobody steals them? Yeah, I promise I won't go totally law school, but I think it's an important point to make that you can't copyright an idea. So the few cases that have been litigated about this exact issue was like someone brought a ghost hunting show and then later there was ghost hunters on NBC. The idea of like a reality TV show with weight loss, there's no protectable way for like an idea itself. However, what is copyrightable is your screenplay, your materials, the treatment that you put together, the exact words that you used. So I'm saying this not to discourage someone, but just to remind them that like in everyday life, there's not really a way to protect that. And someone might come up with the idea. It's ultimately your vision and how you put it together. That is what's protectable. And like I said, my experience is that studios, people don't want to get into fights. They're very expensive. Litigation is very expensive. It's easier to just, hey, I'll just option that screenplay or that treatment probably for not very much money. And then if they don't like you, have someone else write it. Right. That's great for us. <laughs> that I is think that, it takes a is lot that of too savage. <laughs> no, I, it's it's not at all. I think it's actually a, a healthy perspective to have. And on on top of all this, like ideas don't exist in a vacuum. Like there's a reason that A Bug's Life and Ants came out around the same time. Like thing ideas are developing in tandem in the culture in this moment. So it's it's not just because a show that's similar to an idea that you had comes out or a movie that you had an idea about, like it's, that's, that's not something that you can like hang a hat on necessarily. And it's very likely that it was developed and thought of completely independently. Um, Let's talk about chain of title. How do you ensure you have proper chain of title? And what is Uh, chain of title? The elusive chain of title. Yes. Okay, so chain of title is essentially all of the documents you need to show that you own your film. So sometimes, let's say someone else wrote the screenplay. You're going to have an assignment agreement where the writer is assigning that screenplay over to the production company. Or possibly you have an option purchase agreement, which means you option the rights to purchase that screenplay. And then you purchase at a later time. And so that ensures the production owns the screenplay. This is so vitally important, arguably the most important deal of your the entire film because any distributor is going to require it. Any E&O insurance provider is going to require it. And generally you need both to ultimately distribute the film. This should be done as early as possible. In the experience of our fil- of our two films and films that we have optioned going forward, We do this as early as possible because if you are the producer, the second there's heat on a project or cast is attached, you are going to pay probably 10 times as much for that screenplay or for that work as you would have at the outset. So if you're an indie producer and you read something that you like, I would grab those rights as soon as humanly possible because once you start shopping it, especially if you don't have a formal attachment agreement, there's always the situation where someone reads it and then they go nab the rights. And you you really won't be able to do anything in that situation because holding that paperwork that you own the rights, SAG's going to require it. Like I said, a distributor is going to require it. Everyone is going to require it. And it will be a barrier to moving forward with the project at all. What do you think is a fair... So say, like, let's think of like micro-budget very low budget films when you're getting started like having that agreement what do you think is a fair way to set that up so you said this like delayed option agreement where it's like you option it option to have to pay for the rights later on yeah i mean i i'm i'm specifically curious for like super low budget because that's what we we make a lot of here. Like we get a lot of people who made films for under 50K, under 5K. And like, what should they be doing at that early or or at this early stage exactly? So if you're making a micro budget or, you know, you have no money, you obviously don't want to spend money upfront 
on the rights because you don't even know it's going to go forward. So I would recommend having the longest option the writer will allow you to, like 36 months would be golden. Usually it's 12 months and you option that for a dollar. Now, the important thing is when you option that for a dollar, you actually have to pay the dollar and you have to screenshot sending that dollar via PayPal because SAG will want that screenshot because you have to prove chain of time. And then for the purchase price, if you want to be fair to the writer and you want to ensure that the writer doesn't feel like they're being taken advantage of, a percentage of the budget, when you know it's going to be a micro budget, makes a lot of sense. Like 2.5% of the budget, 5% of the budget. In a case where you're making an Indian, you know, I think it's going to be under a million, but there's that Hail Mary chance I could attach someone and it could be 5 million, then it would be better to get away with a flat fee. Or you say, I'll give you 2.5%, but the ceiling is $50,000. So then you know in the crazy Netflix situation that you get to make it for more money, the most you're going to have to pay is $50,000. Not having that ceiling could really hurt you later because let's say in a crazy scenario where you get to make it for a lot of money, like 5%, you know, writers don't hate me. <laughs> but... But, you know, as a producer, I'm putting my producer hat for now. Obviously, you want to keep your budget as small as possible. So I would recommend setting it up like that. And like I said, when you finally do, let's say, purchase the rights, ideally, your contract specifies that you don't have to purchase those rights until the first day of principal photography, not prep, because at prep, maybe your loan hasn't closed and you want to hold on to every dollar that you have. But first day of production will render payment. And when you render payment, you want a screenshot of that wire or a picture of the check, but ideally it's a wire. And you also want to send a formal email. We're exercising, we're exercising our rights to purchase and you want to save that email. SAG sometimes actually requires you, if the writer has a rep, to have the rep confirm that payment is received. So... I would recommend you do all of those things, screenshot them and put them in your little chain of title folder. Because again, the last thing you want is to like, you're finished with color. You desperately need money. You're delivering it. And then you're like, oh my gosh, where is that payment receipt? Yeah. And you're sitting there running through your bank statements. Ask me how I know. And then you're <laughs> trying to get a screenshot. So I would definitely with chain of title, just like if there's anything that's going to be buttoned up, make it chain of title. Yeah. That is good production hygiene. It just feels like it's something you should do. You brush your teeth, you get your train of title in order and you're and you know exactly where the pieces are so you can deliver it at every point that you need it along the way. Yep. Now let's talk about hiring production counsel. So I've heard a couple different approaches. I've spoken with indie filmmaker who likes to try to get his contracts as far along as possible using templates and stuff like that, and then hire a lawyer who has an hourly rate, like you mentioned before. And then there are the scenarios where you are you have a, a lawyer who's attached to talent. So you might be a, a, a director, for example. But what does that, how does that differentiate from production counsel? And, and when do you do that? I think that there is definitely a way, if you are willing to read fine print, to not have a lawyer except for absolutely necessary situations. So there's things like equipment rental agreements or small vendor contracts where you just need someone who's reasonable to read it and make sure there's nothing crazy. Like if you are delayed by one day and turning it in, it's a $5,000 fine. Something crazy like that, right? Where you just, you just need a person to read it and make sure there's nothing shady. Or something about the replacement value would be $20,000, but the equipment is worth $800. You know? Yeah. So all Sentimental of that. Sentimental value. Yes. <laughs> I love Where this you're just like, <laughs> Yeah. You kick yourself later. You're like, this is a $2 screw. Why am I paying $800 or whatever? Yeah. So I think there's a lot of scenarios where you can have a savvy producer read through stuff, sign it. But I would say if you are lucky enough to get A-list talent or someone making over Schedule F, I think you really want to get an attorney. And even though it seems like a lot of money, there are so many ways an attorney can save you because without an attorney, that agent or attorney for the talent will slip in 
horrible things regarding turnaround or things regarding approvals on set that you will kick yourself about later. Or another thing they'll say, this is the fee without any withholding. And then you'll realize at the end of the production, I have to pay 5% on what I paid my talent to her loan out because I agreed to not withhold taxes. And you're now paying her taxes to the state (laughs) franchise board. (laughs) So there's another provision. There's a number of provisions where you're like, well, I'm reading it and it's fine. But something like without withholding could ultimately cost your production so much more and you didn't budget for it. And it's like the worst thing to pay because you didn't get it on the screen. You're just paying it to a state. doesn't need the money anyway. I would also say that you don't necessarily need a lawyer for location agreements, but there's certain things you should make sure to have in a location agreement, such as I would recommend pre-negotiating in advance how much it would cost if you need extra days or an extra week because a location is another situation where you could lose leverage very quickly. Like God forbid you don't make your days, you need two days, and this is the only location, they can charge you 10 times as much as the previous what you paid for, you know, three weeks and you really won't have any leverage. So if you have someone who's savvy who can say, hey, we need to negotiate up front, like if crap hits the fan. But so you want two scenarios. You want like the force majeure situation where the production, you know, pushes because of an earthquake, but you also want that situation where it's like your fault, technically, you know, and the production is pushing because something happened or you didn't like allocate your days well enough. And then I would also say like, if you're closing a loan or you have a distribution agreement, it, it would be really helpful having an attorney in those situations, especially with a distribution agreement. One thing on distribution agreements that I'll say is distributors should assume all of your SAG fringes, for example. So if you don't have an attorney and you don't ask for that, you could be this indie producer who's like paying fringes on your movie you know, later out before you've seen a dollar to put in your pocket to recoup your expenses. So, you know, I can see in a situation where you're like, but they want $250 an hour, but it's really saving you money on the back end mm-hmm. when all of your money has gone to the movie. Yeah, yeah. I've actually just heard a, a friend was telling me that he his friend had to take the, his micro-budget film off of streaming services because he couldn't pay the 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 back end residuals or whatever they yep. set up the points to actors and I'm like that's such a tragic thing like you you worked in good faith and then in theory you can be like gaming traction from this and then because of a technicality you have to take it down which makes having a lawyer all the more worth it can we talk actually about getting your SAG deposit back and Cause that feels like, you know, something, it sounds like something people forget to do. Yes. I will just say that after the birth of my three children, my greatest accomplishment is getting two SAG deposits back. Oh yeah. Which in one of our movies took longer than it did to like be pregnant and birth one of my children. Oh, it took so long. My God. <laughs> so I do have tips on that. My first tip would be to befriend your SAG rep as much as possible. Sometimes it feels like you're dealing with the DMV. I would have someone ask me three times for, for example, the option purchase agreement, and I would want to scream and send them an email <laughs> accordingly. Yeah. And I would just, you know, send smiley faces and send it over because I was so motivated. In one case, it was $13,000. Like, I need that $13,000 for yeah. post. Yeah. You know, I was willing to do anything. I'm like, okay, what's the hoop I have to jump over this time? Yeah. I would also say that SAG reps, a lot of times, I don't know why this is, they feed you like, I need these three things. And then after you accomplish those three things, they send you the next three. So if there's a way to ask upfront, like, can I have exactly what you need? That would be super helpful. Because otherwise you just feel like you're banging your head against the wall because you feel like they keep changing the rules. Like, I thought you only needed these things. Why are you now asking for this? I'm cynical by nature. So I personally think they set it up that way on purpose so that you will never get your deposit back. Because I don't understand why you wouldn't have like a website that clearly says everything that you need to do. Right. In which case, every indie producer would do it throughout the production 
to ensure they could get that money back as soon as humanly possible. So, yeah. I, you know, I think it's... They're creating a, a little bit of a stopgap pipeline to keep keep the money on one side, maybe. Yeah, I would also say that they have very specific requirements about copyright registrations and what they want. They want you to register the screenplay. They all see when the movie is finished. They want you to specifically register the final movie copyright. And they want you to put it on like a separate thing to ensure that they have collateral against it. That's the easy way of saying it. I would follow those instructions to the letter. As a lawyer, I actually messed one of mine up because I thought, oh, I know how to do this and I'm on the copyright site and it seems self-explanatory enough. And SAG was like, no, that's not what we wanted. So I would just be super diligent and reading those instructions exactly what they want. I would also just add that I wouldn't give a SAG rep something they didn't ask for because information is power. And sometimes I've had friends who give them something and opens a whole nother can of worms that is very problematic. Yeah. So I would give them exactly what they asked for and nothing more. That's actually, I feel like a great producer piece of advice as well, just across the board. And it's not something that I understood until I worked for a producer of, you know, director who was working on a Amazon show. And before that they had worked on a movie and, and I think I felt like, oh, I'm helping out by sharing, oversharing and keeping people like so in the loop. But like that can be also something that slows things down or opens a can of worms. And it it took a little bit of like unlearning and discerning what isn't, what does this person need to know? What is helpful? And then what is, you know, in the way? Yeah. And I'm not saying we should hide things from SAG, but you know, there's certain scenarios where it's not a SAG covered work, like with certain extras or background or things like that. So I don't think it's always helpful to ask a question or send something along that's not necessarily in their purview. Because obviously SAG is there to protect actors. And then they insert yourself and you're like, oh my gosh, this wasn't even, you know, SAG jurisdiction. And now I'm in like an email chain and phone calls that I wish I wasn't in. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like big phone calls where people are dialing in and you've got Stacy. Okay, let's, I'm curious about, we talked a little bit about like the details of, you know, when you get to the point of distribution, but what about tips for legal delivery to your distributor? So when you get a distributor contract, there's usually going to be an exhibit that's at the end that everyone ignores. That is the legal delivery requirements. Those should not be ignored until the end when you're ready to deliver the movie it will bite you in the butt later. I would, first of all, when you get that distributor contract, look through legal delivery and make sure that it's something that you can do, You know that they're not asking for it in some format you can't deliver it in or whatever, or they're not... Like, let's say the movie's finished and the delivery includes required you know, 40 hours of EPK and you didn't take EPK. So first of all, you want to make sure that that exhibit, which is usually ignored by people, totally makes sense doesn't include things that you can actually provide. Because the last thing you want is to be in this exciting, the movie is done, let's submit it to festivals. And you're having to have these like awkward conversations that you don't have materials that you promise to deliver. So first of all, I would memorize that exhibit and make sure that you can do it. The other thing I would do is make sure everyone is aware of anything that's outside of the ordinary that you do need to delivery. Like, stills or you know publicity stills or some picture that they want for the poster whatever it might be and like your chain of title i would be very organized throughout production to ensure that you have all of these pieces on our last one we started working on the credit block while in production we used our call sheets and we were filming you know we were filling in our excel sheets for credits because again a year later it's going to be very difficult to remember you know who is your script supervisor the two days your main one was not there. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Not that a distributor necessarily cares, but you want to do the right thing. So I think being organized is definitely your friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think reading those delivery requirements is also very, very important. 
Sometimes they require a clearance report, for example, and sometimes they don't. So let's say that they require this clearance report. It's better for you to get that clearance report off the script in advance of the movie. Because God forbid that clearance report says something is not clear or you can't use that name and that's your character name. You're in a much worse position at the end of the movie and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't use that name or I can't use that cereal. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. That just gave me like a pang of anxiety because it's like, oh, you can't use the name Teresa Smith. And it's like, well, fuck. That's her name and we say it 80 times. Exactly. And some distributors don't ask for that clearance report. So if you do, you know, there's a ton of inexpensive options, you know, online where you submit your script and they send you a report and that's going to be sufficient for your distributor. But like, don't do it off the finished movie. <laughs> right. Script. Right. I just went through that with a, a scripted podcast that I wrote for iHeart. And there's a the opening moment is a little bit of a riff on Scream where somebody answers a phone and heavy breathing on the other end. And the like, we had to change the dialogue because it was too close to that. And I'm like, well, it's parodying that. And they're like, but I was like, I trust, I trust this council. And, um, and then we were, you know, using Birkenstocks, talking about our dad's Birkenstocks. And like, we had to make sure that we were okay to say that. My first time going through legal on a script. Okay, now this is more of like a life question and then I I do have some more legal specific questions, but how do you stay organized? Like what tools do you use to stay organized? So, I'm old school. Like I use Microsoft Office, so I have folders that then have many folders inside. So, they say chain of title, producer agreement, tax documents, you know, like your W9s. Because how many times in production are you asked? Or like insurance certificates. And I think that I'm actually not an organized person by nature. That's really you no know Myers Briggs. I'm a P. <laughs> but you know, I've learned that it's going to save you so much time, right? If you have your insurance certs in one folder, every time you're in production and someone asks for it, it's very easy to send it along. So a million folders within a main folder. Yeah. That sounds actually <laughs> incredibly satisfying. What yeah, it actually kind of is because then when someone like our distributor asks for something like, can you send the producer contracts or can you send the actors the listing contracts? I have it right there. Nice. Send it over. Like, yep. There it goes. Okay, back to back to some more legal questions. Let's talk about key provisions to include in talent contracts. So you find an actor you love. Where do you go from there? So first of all, I would never let the representatives of said actor or actress to draft the contract because that form will be terrible. You will regret it. So I would get an attorney to draft um, the contract or maybe you have a form. And if the form is good and from a trusted producer, that would work. Some key things that I think are important. Number one, pay or play should be on the day of travel. Do not agree to pay or play two months before your movie. Too many things can happen you know, like maybe a strike or maybe a COVID push or all of these other things. So pay or play should be the day that the actor or actress travels for escrowing money. I would make that escrow requirement as soon as possible to production. There are certain names where they want, you know, the money escrowed immediately upon agreement of terms, which means potentially money that you desperately need to develop and start prep is held up in some CAA escrow account. That is terrible. So you definitely want that escrow to maybe be at most a week before the talent travels. We all know prep is when you are just bleeding money. So anything you can do to hold on to that money is ideal. For indie productions, ideally, you can get away with two contracts. One for the performance of the actor. And then the second one for publicity services and general consulting. The reason for that would be that publicity services are not covered under SAG. So you can save quite a bit of residuals doing that. It has to be a reasonable percentage. You can't put all of your money in a publicity contract, but that will save you money, especially if you have a very low budget indie. And for indies, talent attorneys are used to that. They're used to seeing that. And then within that publicity contract, make sure things like the first festival or the premiere are required for the talent to show up. Obviously, you can't make a talent do anything, but 
if you have it in the contract, you're going to have better luck in the end. Talent's going to hate me for saying this, but in the landscape that we're in, I think a morals clause, if you can get away with it, is highly effective. So a morals clause would say you can't intentionally disparage the film or the producers. It would say if you do anything that brings you into public disrepute, you know, Me Too, committing a felony, drug use that is overt or in some way, you know, causes you to come into public disrepute, we're able to terminate. That would help you because if you have a pay or play clause and you don't have a morals clause, you could be in a situation where you've escrowed money and then someone is a pariah and now what do you do? So talent agents and attorneys really hate it. But you know, I think in the landscape that we're in, you should at least try and say it's important to you. I actually worked on the movie where Kevin Spacey was replaced and uh, you know, cost a lot of money and visual effects and bring in another actor. So I think it's important. And then, like I said before, not agreeing to no withholding of an actor's fee. Because if you're filming in some other jurisdiction, sometimes they're going to, if they're going to use the benefit of a loan out corporation, an actor is, then a lot of times the state will take anywhere from, you know, five to 10% from that loan out for doing business in that company. And that should be on the actor because I guarantee yeah. they're making more than you. Yeah. <laughs> as a producer. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Okay, so we talked about, you know, agreements with locations, but I'd love to talk about what to avoid when it comes to vendor agreements and what to definitely go for with vendor agreements. Yeah, I I train a lot of legal interns on reviewing vendor and equipment rental agreements. So really it's like read this and does any of it sound unreasonable? Or ridiculous. Like the $800 screw is lost. Or the $2 screw costs $800. If there's a dispute, it will be decided in Malta. And like you're sitting in Oklahoma. You're like, what? Wait, why Why do I have to go to Malta? I mean, there's weird things in equipment rental agreements. So definitely look at what is the penalty if it's going to be late. Because, you know, I've been on productions where like the entire truck with all the equipment broke down. It was a day late. It wasn't our fault and it wasn't necessarily production, but it's like stuff happens. Make sure, you know, that there's always a reasonable wear and tear within that because things like a C stand or other equipment, you're like, okay, yeah, it has a scratch on it. You're going to use it for 200 other productions. Like, why should I pay for that? Ridiculous. So that's why you need that reasonable wear and tear. Now, Let's see. I'm going over my questions. Oh, what do you think the biggest fear that we can debunk right now is about working with lawyers in entertainment? Well, if you're working with an hourly attorney, I'm sure people think, oh, they're just charging you way too much. They're not spending as much time on the matter as possible. Sadly, I think in the case of attorneys who are taking 5%, sometimes I think they don't look at a contract long enough. So, I mean, I don't know. (laughs) It's like... In some ways, you know, it's hard either way. I also think just like, you know, attorneys are making money and taking my money, but they don't add that much value or worth. And yeah, maybe that's true with some, but I think in in most cases, the entertainment law world is so small that people do care about their reputation. So if you started to get a reputation of someone who really wasn't out for your client's best interests, then you probably wouldn't get a lot of clients. Because managers talk, agents talk, lawyers talk. I actually remember a really hard negotiation with a talent attorney who was just really passionate for his client. And I remember thinking to myself, my husband ever makes it big as a director, I would hire him (laughs) to represent him. So there was like respect in it, even though it's very difficult for me as an in-house attorney. Yeah. So trying to think of anything else. I, I think on an indie, as a producer, you're always trying to focus on how can the money get to the screen. And so sometimes it's like reading through loan docs, you know, that's not gonna that's not gonna show ultimately on the screen. And maybe that's not true. But if they could save you a couple percentage points or they could save you some really onerous bad things that are in a loan document, like the penalty if you know you pay a day late or something. And I think they will ultimately save you 
producer money in the end. Because let's be honest, at the end, there's probably not that much money in the yeah. production. Now, say we are people who have lawyers and mm-hmm. and what can we do to be like par- good partners to our counsel? That is such a good question. I think it's really important if you are a talent and you have a lawyer to let lawyers know upfront things that are important to you. I've recalled talent deals I did where the main thing this director cared about was his wife got to travel with him at all times. And it was actually because his wife had had cancer. It's really hard if you don't say that till the end. Like all the paperwork is done, you're about to sign. And it's like, oh, I want first class tickets for my wife. But if you set it up front and gave the reason, almost everyone would oblige. So I think it's really important to think critically when you're in the situation where you're like, oh my gosh, I have my deal with Netflix. What's important to you and what's not important to you? Because mm-hmm. Alternatively, you also don't want your lawyer being an a-hole to someone about an issue that you literally don't care about, like your trailer size. You know, you're like, I don't even care. I'm gonna, be, I'm gonna be so excited. I'm gonna be sitting on set. Like, why are we fight, fighting about? You know, I have to have a double banger or whatever. So, I think it's, I think it's helpful to like get to know your lawyer and tell them things, especially if you care about something that maybe other people don't care about. Mm-hmm. And can you give an, also, an example of, of something like that, that you've worked for your client towards? I mean, I love this. I, I love the example of like this, this director who was like, I, my wife needs to travel with me. Like, that's very important to me, but like something that might be like, I think when you are first in these situations, like it's so easy to be like, I'm so lucky to be even considered like, thanks for having me take whatever and what are like oh, things that are, it's okay to want blank? It's okay to want. Like, yeah. <laughs> you might be in a position where your life, you're like, giving me the most money possible is the most important thing. I don't care about credit. I don't care if I get to go to the set. I don't care about these things. Other people say the credit is the most important thing. I spent three years on this project. I'll take a bucket of chicken, but I want my credit in main titles and I want it in some certain order. And so I think that's why thinking about what you care about and letting your reps know is extremely valuable. I've been in situations where I'm the in-house lawyer, we've gone five rounds, and then the lawyer has the talent read the deal or go through the details with them. And then they come back to me and say, she has to have her hairdresser or you have to do these things. And it is such an infuriating moment. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're like, why didn't you tell me this yeah. four drafts ago? We could all work together to make this happen. Such a human thing to want to do. Like we want to make it happen. We want to get to an agreement. Right. And then do you really want to be talent who's starting with like everyone's kind of sour on you? Because they're like, what happened? But actually it could be the lawyer didn't know or they didn't communicate. So I would say that you should stay involved with the process as much as possible. If you are on a project and you're so excited and you're like, I'm going to start writing, that's great. But you should pay attention to your emails, see what's coming through, read through the agreement sooner rather than later. And you know, I think it's valuable to obviously also talk to other people who have had similar deals. Because I will also say sometimes when you're starting out, you're like, this is really important to me. And then you know, you talk to a writer who's on multiple series and they're like, you're never going to get that. I've never gotten that. And you're like, right. oh, okay. Yeah. I've had that as well, where it's like someone's first TV show and they have like all of these demands and you're like, this is not reasonable. Yeah. And yeah, then you don't want to, you know, are you? Lose the deal. but then yeah. sometimes it is. So I think, you know, I think I'll add on to that, that deferring to attorneys about what is industry standard can also be really valuable mm-hmm. because, you know, you want to get to the position where you can be a diva. You don't want to be a diva before, you know, you even landed something. Right. Right. <laughs> and then... I, I actually think that there is something that I've noticed in this industry where I think if people are blissful ignorance to the system actually hurts more people in the long run in production, there's this ripple effect. So like when an actor who is in a lead role on a production thing changes their mind about something and then like people's lives are impacted, like people will not be going home to their families. So like, the more informed you can be and the more you can learn as you're coming up, the more people will want to work with you. Like we hear these nightmare stories of divas and devos and D people. 
on set. And and then we hear about the good ones and we're like, oh, yes, I'm so glad that they're a joy to work with. And I'm so glad that like, of course, there is an element of like respecting your work, respecting your time and like standing by your personal brand. And especially when I think of actors, like what a vulnerable position to be in. Yeah. Like in front of the camera. Like I understand why there there is such careful attention paid to everything. But but yeah, I think I think the the more we're informed, the more the more we can bring to the table at the end of the day. Yeah, information is power. I totally agree with that. On that on that same note, if you're interviewing attorneys, you should ask your rep. If your rep is helping you, your manager agent, you should say, Do you have any existing clients that I could talk to? You should call the client and say, does your attorney do a good job? Are they nice? Because that's the other thing. You could be the nicest person in the world and like you're known for having terrible reps, you know, who scream at everyone. Yeah. And maybe you like that, right? Like some people <laughs> want that. But other yeah. people are like horrified. They're like, why are you screaming at everyone who gave yeah. me a chance? So yeah, I think learning that information is super helpful. Well, any other advice as we wrap up here? I mean, I could just go on and on. Maybe we have you on for a part two to dig in more, but this is so helpful. But anything else you want to leave our listeners with or advice you have for those emerging filmmakers or emerging entertainment lawyers? I cannot think of anything. Do you want me to speak to the indie climate and the strike? I'd love that. Is this Let me caveat that we are recording this on July 14th, the day after SAG officially, 2023, the day after SAG joined, SAG is struck, striking. I don't know the language. (laughs) The WGA still striking. Yeah, speak to indie, indie film, indie and this moment. Yeah, so SAG just went on strike. And I was talking to some casting directors who have indie projects and they were saying, you know, this actually could be good for indies because SAG will be giving these interim agreements to truly independent producers who are not otherwise affiliated with the AMTMP. And so it could be good in that actors who want to work, probably not today, but if this goes on for a long time, they will be able to work for certain indie productions who've gotten that waiver. What you're agreeing to is that you're going to agree to the terms of the agreement once, once they are made. But, you know, I, I just wanted to say that because I think all is not lost for indie producers in this moment. And I also want to add that the Guild said that interim agreements are not necessary for productions that are filming under the Guild's lowest budget agreements. So that's the short project agreement, the micro budget agreement, the student film agreement, and the independent new media agreement. Those are not within scope because those are not under negotiation. So if you have a project under any of those agreements and you want to hire SAG talent, you're still able to, and you're not doing something you know that is against the strike. Wow. That is so helpful. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Do you think that producer, like an indie producer should give, you know, again, July 14th, we're right in the middle, the start in the middle. Do you think they should like kind of give a week or two? Do you think that this will be a mad dash to clarify it? Would you say the more, the faster you act, the better? What What is your opinion on that? I think the climate right now with actors in the street, you know, as they should be, is that we should probably hold the beat and see what happens because it may be resolved quickly. My hunch is that this is not going to be resolved quickly and that within a few months, actors will want to work. And I think that would be a great opportunity for indie producers to come in and try to attach them to projects. And then, you know, if they, if they're on an agreement that is one of those that it is in scope, maybe then they're ready to go with their production and the strike does do. Well, thank you so much. This is so great. We'll have to have you back on. Maybe you can become a, a guest that comes on the podcast and joins us and helps us unpack Ask No Film School questions from a legal perspective. If that interests you, I'm putting you on the spot. No pressure to answer. We can figure out the terms and the deal points <laughs> later on. But it was oh. truly a pleasure. This is I, I feel like when I first started doing these podcasts for No Film School, I was like, required listening, required listening, required listening all around. And then I was like, oh, a lot of the time we're hearing similar but different stories. And I love those interviews, but this is genuinely required listening. So. Well, thank you so much. I would love to come back. 
I would love to answer, you know, specific questions as well if anyone wants to submit them. So thanks for having me. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you so much for joining us, Natalie, and for our listeners for tuning in. Information really is power. And this is just the beginning of our conversation with Natalie. What questions do you have from a legal standpoint about taking an indie film to the next level now that you've heard Natalie's tips on what not to do? Shoot us an email, podcast at nofilmschool.com. And this fall, let's hear again from Natalie as her Christmas horror thriller, A Creature Was Stirring, directed by her partner and husband, Damien Luvec, comes out in theaters. We'll be able to get more into the nitty gritty of taking that project to the screen from both an indie film producing perspective as well as from a legal perspective. Thank you so much for listening. You can get more No Film School on our website, nofilmschool.com. You can follow us at No Film School across social media. And you can also like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. 